Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, July 8th. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. We have a full compliment today. It's awesome. Um, so today uh, we are going to revisit the topic of intergenerational trauma. Uh, your mama's drama can cause you trauma. <laughs> Which, <laughs> uh, so we're just uh, we had covered this topic a little bit before in a previous show, but we had some technical difficulties uh, and we had some requests from our listeners to revisit the topic. Um, so we are going to be coming back to that with a little bit of extra information. Uh, so it should be a good show today. Um, but let's start off with a little bit of connecting the dots. And we just have some recent um, uh, items from health news uh, that are of import. Um, Erica, do you want to run us through this first one, the California vaccine law? Yes. Yeah, so we've covered this on previous shows, but um, it looks like the California vaccine law took effect on July 1st. And it requires vaccinations for all school-age students. Um, uh, basically, under California law now in effect, parents will have to get their children immunized against chickenpox, measles, mumps, and seven other viruses in order to reg register for school. No longer can parents choose not to vac their, vaccinate their children, citing a personal belief exemption. And, um, you know, this has been going on for the past year, and uh, in the article they talk about Dr. Bloomberg, how he says he respects the parents' right for being so devoted to their children, but he disagrees that, um, you know, parents should have this exemption or not want to basically immunize their kids. So it's really kind of upsetting, mm. you know, to see mm. how... Um, People's rights are being taken away, and for our listeners who may not remember, again, we've talked about this in the past, but SB 277 is California's vaccine law, and it was passed because of a rich Senator Richard Pan who had all kinds of conflicts of interest. And He's basically a vaccine whore. Yeah. Total he grease the show. wheels. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, he he has direct ties to make makers of the vaccines, and um, in an article called "Undue Influence," Big Pharma made huge donations to California lawmakers on voting on mandatory vaccines. Pharmaceutical companies and their trade groups gave current members of the legislature more than two million dollars. So nine of the top 20 recipients of these funds are either members of the Senate Health Committee or leaders who could influence the outcome of the bill as well as push it through the law. And all the protests and you know, petitions and all that doesn't really matter. They're going to do what they want to yeah. do. And what's yeah. the judge's name? <laughs> oh, no, that's, no, that's the, the next story. Oh, the next that's one? the next story. Okay. But um, one thing that's that's interesting, you know, is this is setting a precedence and – in the past, I've talked about Barbara Lowe Fisher. She's the, she founded the National Vaccine Information Center, and she reported about this whole thing in California back in uh, 2015 of October. But basically, you know, there's about 1.7% of ki kindergarten children that have vaccine exemptions. 
And, um, you know, she says in, in an article here called School Vaccination Rates, what the CDC is not telling parents is that the Center for Disease Control Directive comes at a time when nationwide 94% of kindergarten students have gotten multiple doses of federally recommended vaccine for the past three decades, including five doses of pertussis, two doses of measles containing vaccines. But the CDC is not telling parents the rest of the story about the real health status of school children in America. And she says perhaps the CDC is pursuing higher and higher vaccination rates and getting a vaccine and gutting vaccine exemptions to try and take attention away from the chronic disease and disability epidemic sweeping through the classrooms that make it harder and harder for children to learn and be healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, talk about trauma. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I almost wonder if we'll see a move to uh, to homeschooling as a result of this. Well, in California and in that article that we started off with, um, the author, it's just basically a local California, KCRA.com is the website that carried this article. Um, they're pushing to have even homeschool children have documentation for mandatory vaccinations. Oh, my God. And, and, and this author writing about this said she knows personally already 10 people who've moved out of the state because, you know, you can't not everyone can afford to homeschool their children. She also said this strongly affects like Latino communities or non-native English speakers because you know, they don't really know their rights. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it comes with fear, intimidation. You know, you're you're forced with, do I give my child a vaccine or do I leave the state or homeschool them? And I think a lot of parents out of desperation will get the vaccines, mm-hmm. even if they don't mm-hmm. wholeheartedly believe in it. You can still get a medical exemption, but I wonder how many hoops you have to jump through for that. Yeah, it seems mm. pretty yeah. low chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's complete medical fascism. Yes. Exactly. Completely backing yep. people into a corner so they don't have a choice. And really, it's against your religious rights, but maybe that's for another show. <laughs> you know, I, I think <laughs> if. If our listeners are interested, they can look at more on Barbara Lowe Fisher, but she did write an excellent article about the whole religious exemptions and how it's your freedom to have Mm -hmm. a religious or a conscientious objection to these things. But I think people are just not informed enough and it's scaremongering, fearmongering. And when you push people into a corner, Mm -hmm. they're going to do what they can to survive, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's just the thing, right? Even if people are informed, in a lot of cases, it's like, do I really want to go up against this monolithic beast? You know what I mean? Is does everybody have the energy to to actually engage in that fight? I think it's a it's a lot easier, unfortunately, for a lot of people to just kind of give in because they just don't have you know the ability to to stand for their rights. Yeah, Which and they don't have the, the support either. Yeah, it reminds me of the discussion we have on a previous show where there was a lawyer who gave a talk at the UN, if I'm not mistaken, about human rights and vaccinations. Basically, she said that, you know, 
given way to these kinds of policies, you know, it sets a precedence like Nazi Germany, where there mm-hmm. was basically eugenics, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, <clears throat> one thing that strikes me is that people don't think that this is generally don't think that this is that serious, it, you know, which is why the I don't think that the religious exemption issue or the personal belief issue is really going to gain a foothold because I think a lot of people would um, give more credence to that in the case of like uh, objecting to war, you know, say signing up for the military or something like that. But um, given the general opinion on, on vaccines, um, when you bring it up, they're like, ah, you know, it, it's not that serious. So screw your religious exemption. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just trying trying to milk it. Um, so, I mean, I'd be curious if we'll see more kind of civil movement in, in that area. But, uh, you know, honestly, I doubt it. Well, one of our chatters asks if there's liability if something happens to a child when they receive a vaccine. And there isn't. You actually can't sue the vaccine companies. There is something called the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. You can report, and they do have, like, this fund where you can appeal to the government and you can get some money, but you can't technically sue the vaccine companies. Right. I was going to say there is that that fund, but I don't even think that... uh that very many people have succeeded in that area. Oh, he said he like was referring really... to suing the state. <laughs> I don't think so on yeah. that one either. <laughs> good, good luck on that one. Well, what's yeah. interesting is, again, Barbara Lowe Fisher talks about in this Defending Your Religious Exemption to Vaccine, she talks about how in 2011 the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with what Congress said in 1986 that government-licensed vaccines are unavoidably unsafe and pharmaceutical corporations should not be held liable for vaccine injuries and deaths. Mm. So, there you have it. Well, speaking of uh, legal action, um, let's, let's go to our next Connecting the Dots topic, which is the, uh, the story of the Stefan family or Stefan family in Canada. Um, and our listeners might remember that story. Um, who they, uh, let's see David Stefan and his wife, uh, Colette, um, their child, uh, became ill and then died. Um, and they had been, uh, trying to treat the child with, uh, natural remedies. Um, and this is not a case of like some backwoods people, you know, just ignoring medical advice. They, uh, they had actually had a nurse present. There's a bunch of uh, details about this story that are very important to understand without just judging these people. Um, but the judge uh, did actually sentence uh, the uh, the man, David, to prison and his wife to three months of house arrest over the issue. Hmm. Another episode of trauma from the state. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> So it's not enough that they lost their child. Now they have to do prison time as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And five years later. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was five yeah. years later that they they got charged with this. Uh, Tiffany, you want to read the, the judges? I don't have the quote in front of me, but the judge, his name is. <laughs> oh, okay. I have it. 
Judge Rodney Jerk. E. <laughs> J-E-R-K-E. <laughs> so basically, uh, uh, they sent sentenced him to prison. The couple was found guilty earlier this year of failing to provide necessities of life to their 19-year-month-old son, Ezekiel. Which is untrue. Yeah. Because the details of the case are that the child had these symptoms, none of which were terrible, none of which fit the symptoms of bacterial meningitis. And he would have periods where he got better and periods where he had symptoms. And the nurse came and visited and said that she worked with somebody who happened to have meningitis. So just keep this in mind. And also, then when things... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I seem to remember that when they did finally uh, ask for an emergency service, an ambulance, mm-hmm. it was absurd. You know, it was like there were several available, but like the most uh, difficult one to get was the one that was serviced. Yeah, yeah there was... There were the one that they got was from many miles away and took a while to get to the house um, and wasn't even fully equipped. Mm-hmm. And it came out later that there was an ambulance, a fully equipped ambulance, within like like hundreds of yards of their house, like mm-hmm. less than a mile away from their house, that the dispatch did not, uh, you know, send to the house. Mm-hmm. So if anything, you know, that, the the family should be suing the state. You know, seriously, yeah. Well, to, 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 I'll read you guys the, uh, the statement from Judge Jerk because it's just <laughs> mind blowing. So the judge in the Steffens case called the couple willfully blind and blamed them for their son's death. And this is what they quoted. You have affected many people. Your conduct has left an unerasable and chilling impact on us all. This case was about whether parents who failed to take a sick boy to a doctor should be held criminally responsible. The trial was not about vaccination. This is far beyond a child who simply had sniffles. And then the judge goes on to acknowledge the fact that the parents loved and cared for their son, but called their alternative treatment a failure. So Mr. Steffen's post-conviction actions demonstrate a complete lack of remorse. The judge said to this day he refuses to admit his actions had any impact. And, and, I, and the father only got, I think it was three months, and the mom got four months of house arrest. But they have four other children. Mm-hmm. So imagine yeah. the trauma that these children are going to go through. Not only did they lose their brother, their parents have been battling this court case for the last five years. Now their parents are being held criminally responsible for the death of their son when Mm -hmm. it wasn't the parents. And you you can only imagine how all eyes of the state are going to be on that family, just making sure they stay in line Mm -hmm. with their other (sighs) children and do not step out of, you know, certain treatment protocols. So they're never going to have, like, seems like they won't have a day of rest. Well, it's pretty obvious what the uh, what the goal is here. I mean, the last the last sentence in the article actually says, sentencing the Steffens to prison does nothing for the betterment of them or society. And I think that's a very good point. Like, what what is actually being accomplished by sentencing these people to prison? Nothing. You know what I mean? It's not like they're going to, you know, as if, 
you know, if, if there is a lesson to be learned here, I mean, obviously the death of their son was probably enough like punishment for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. So really what they're doing is it's sending a message, you know, to people like now every parent is going to be looking over their shoulder all the time. Cause suddenly if they choose a, a, a modality that isn't kind of mainstream medicine, then suddenly they can be held liable if anything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, is anybody held liable if something goes wrong in conventional medical treatment? I mean, what was the, the study that was done? Uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago that uh, medical errors are now the third leading cause of death in the United States, only behind cancer and heart disease. Mm-hmm. So it's like, is it, you know, <laughs> what, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And it's frustrating, I mean, because it's, as we discussed, and if you really look into the uh, situation, they were trying very hard to treat the child. It's not like they had a sick kid in the couch and they were like, screw the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they, were, they were trying very hard. They had a nurse, registered nurse at the house. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but, the, you know, of course, in the in this day and age where people just kind of read the headline and then believe the story, uh, you would think that they were just, you know, willfully negligent deadbeat parents um, which is mm-hmm. not the case and I, it's good on them for for standing up for themselves i'm sure it's a incredibly tough battle yeah well and doug didn't you say in a previous show where we talked about this about the the family having a history and like the natural health mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and they had been targeted the father or something the grandfather had yeah. started a, a vitamin company so it's almost yeah. like setting a precedence. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, 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 I don't remember the details exactly, but I think it was uh, David's father who started up a company called True Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sell a, a few different supplements, and one of them is kind of a brain supplement. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's uh, it's actually quite popular, and a lot of people have, have um, uh, benefited from it. But uh, I know that he has gone through no end of kind of uh, difficulties with, uh, I think he's even been sued and stuff like that. Yeah, I think but, he was uh, sued and he won. So yeah, maybe that's right. the state kind of trying to get back at them. Right. There was speculation when the whole case actually came out that uh, there was kind of a vengeance um, undercurrent to the whole thing. So, well, we... Uh, I mean, we certainly wish these guys well and um, hope that they're able to get through their time, uh, you know, under prison or under house arrest and, and in prison. Uh, okay. Um, but of course, that's not the end of the story. As uh, Erica said, there's going to be trauma from this uh, for them and, and for their children into the future. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, hopefully they're able to do getting for home care, even though this tragedy happened um you know it's i think it's a what strikes me is the the point that uh bad things do happen i mean you know i don't think anybody in the natural health world is advocating for the idea that you you know that nothing bad will ever happen if you use natural cures Hmm. um you know it's not a perfect world and sometimes people get sick and they die um and you know evidence shows that that actually happens a lot more in the healthcare system than it does at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll see how this goes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think so it also uh, set, sets a precedent for anybody who is kind of on the fence or, you know, <clears throat> people who, who have had bad experiences with, you know, Western medicine. So they think, oh, maybe I'll try something different. And then cases like this come out or the mandatory vaccine thing comes out or any number of other things. And it sways the, the person to think, well, maybe not, you know. Maybe I'll be prosecuted, or something will happen to me bad if I if I don't follow the mainstream status quo. You know exactly. Yeah, put the fear in people. Yeah, I would say in a large majority of the population that the the idea of treating yourself naturally and without the aid of the hospital, except in you know certain extreme cases, and even in some extreme cases. Um, that is, has been lumped in with like the whole tinfoil hat kind of nutter category. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that's been pretty successfully demonized at this point, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, for one, uh, I know I've mentioned this on the show before, but a couple of years ago I had, I got shingles and I was able to treat it myself and actually recovered more quickly than people I know who had had it and gone to the doctor. Um, so you know, it's yeah. that even in extreme cases, it can work uh, quite well. But you have to uh, do your research and know kind of you know what you're supposed to do. Um, yeah. So it it's a it's a fine line. That's where I think uh, education really you know self education really needs to be advocated for, mm-hmm. um, because you can talk to you can talk to people about this topic and say that like you should treat yourself, um, but a lot of people just don't know what to do. And so yeah. I think that conversation should begin with you need to educate yourself about how to treat yourself, how to self-diagnose, and, and how to find, you know, the right uh, cures for different symptoms. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, a compl- it's a really complex topic, and a lot of people just don't have the time for that. Yeah. Well, that's where a good natural practitioner can really come in handy as well. You know, if you don't have the, the, the knowledge yourself, then it's always a really good idea to find somebody who does. Yeah. Find somebody who has... Um, has experience uh, in the particular um, case that you're looking at um, that has a good reputation um, because, you know, that you, you can't necessarily expect you yourself to be able to find everything you need to find, the information you need to find. So, right. yeah, finding a good natural practitioner is a definitely a good way to go. Yeah. Well, I had a similar experience when my children were young and they had, a, one of them had a really bad ear infection and, I was working at a health store and doing alternative treatments and then, you know, the immunization thing came up and the guy basically pushed me into a corner, not physically, but, you know, verbally assaulted me to the point where I was at tears. I was afraid and concerned and here my child's really sick. And luckily, um, some my employer at the time had a health practitioner, alternative health practitioner, and they could see I was very distressed and they said, well, go to this other, you know, naturopathic doctor and get a second opinion. And I did. And it really eased my stress in the sense that there was another perspective. And I, Hmm. you know, held strong against the doctor, but he intimidated the crap out of me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had I caved under the white coat pressure, I may have taken his advice and gotten, you know, he, my child had two uh, ear infections and walking pneumonia. And of course, you know, they're like, well, you got to get this vaccine and this vaccine, you know, and, and, uh, I just held strong and, and 
got a second opinion, but most people don't do that because your, your child is sick and you, you don't want to cause more damage, you know, so sometimes you, you get persuaded into doing the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and talk about an authority figure. I mean, you know, doctors are, are um, right up there, I think, even higher. I think people generally probably respect doctors more than other authority figures like police or politicians and things like that. You know, they're they're supposed to have your best interests at mind. They're they're well studied. Um, you know, they're highly intelligent. They're well paid, which shouldn't matter, but it does. You know, in people's minds. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, so when they're when they're using intimidation tactics, then it's very effective. And you really hear some um, you hear some horror stories. Um of doctors, how, how overpowering they can be in their interaction with, with people. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can be so difficult for someone who maybe isn't even aware that there is other options. Um, you know, and, and they, I guess they're so, they're so bogged down with the stresses of daily life that, um, they just give in, you know? Yep. Well, and that's yep. inducing trauma. <laughs> yes. You know, because yeah. you you're in this fight or flight response mode, and you have all this adrenaline going through your body, and you can't think straight because you're afraid, and mm-hmm. bam, there you go. You know, you're traumatized, and then the child is traumatized, and you <laughs> know, I mean, after that experience, every time we went to the doctor, my daughter was traumatized. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, what's going to mm-hmm. happen now? You know, you see the guy in the white Jeez. coat and. I mean that's that's a really good point, Erica. Because I guess to some extent, like um, when when people are sort of overpowered by these doctors, um, it, it to some extent disempowers them. It 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 takes away their 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 choice. And as you know, most of us know that's one of the main factors in trauma is losing one sense of um, of choice. You know, it's it's that mm-hmm. disempowerment, and then that can lead to to all sorts of things. Yeah, that's what I like about uh, chiropractic. Uh, the I've, and I've only seen two chiropractors in my life. You know, more than one time, of course, but two separate chiropractors, and they both said our goal here is to have you not come back. We don't yeah. want your business. You know, <laughs> um, and I've I've never had a doctor say that to me before. They you know they may imply that and they they treat you and of course a a lot of doctors do actually want you to get better but the i think the problem here is the the system that has been uh cultivated around medicine um which is now so intimately tied with uh with the large pharmaceutical companies um that i i hate to disparage doctors across the board because i still hold the idea that a lot of them really do have your best interests at heart but they themselves have been deceived and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it, it's, we should, I think, uh, generally feel some sort of empathy for doctors as well. Um, because, you know, if somebody is brainwashed, it's not necessarily their fault. Now, if they're willfully ignorant, that's a different thing. Um, but, you know, if somebody's been indoctrinated, uh, and put into a position of authority and carried that indoctrination with them, uh, it's a really tough situation because, you know, you want to respect and have empathy for the person. You also want to stand up for yourself. So um, I'd say the best case is like when you're, if you have a general medical practitioner as your doctor, just speak openly with them, 
you know, and say like, it, like, don't talk down to me. Like I'm five. Like, can we have a conversation about this? Um, but it, it, I don't know. It's a difficult situation. It is because a lot of doctors don't want to have a conversation. They right. want you to come in. They give you their professional opinion. You take that and, and go with it. And that's, that's the treatment. You know, it's, it, I, I think finding a doctor who is actually open and wants to have a conversation about it is a relatively rare thing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but, um, you know, I think most doctors pull out this prescription pad and, and that's, that's it. You're expected to go get that prescription and don't question it. Yeah. And of course, you know, at the root of all of this, uh, you know, maybe a little simplistic view, but it's money and power, you know, mm. and it, that's, I think, endemic throughout the entire society. But it just strikes me that um, the correct modalities of, of treatment, empathy, compassion from a physician's point of view, the idea of actually healing the body has been supplanted by um, the ability to have power and the ability to make a lot of money. And of course, the pharmaceutical yeah. companies have so much money. I mean, a, a really ridiculous amount of money, tens of, of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions, um, that when that faucet gets turned on, it, I mean, it's hard for anybody to say no. Mm. So anyway, but that is not our topic for today. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's transition a little bit to the intergenerational trauma, trauma from your mama. Um, <laughs> What, uh, what what new stuff do we have to, to add this week to that topic? <laughs> We're screwed. <No. laughs> well, I thought what uh, Elliot had mentioned before the show is interesting. I don't know, Elliot, if you want to riff on that a little bit, the idea that um, the information being passed through DNA. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, is that where we're going to start start off from? Or yes, you tell us yeah. all about it. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. Let's yeah. start I mean, with I, the I dad. <laughs> so our show yeah. is trauma from let's your start mama. With daddy. Yeah, <laughs> this little twinkle in your dad's eye when he meets your mother. <laughs> it's not all Eve's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, did we lose um, him? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Right, okay. Um, well, okay, so what I was thinking before, I mentioned it before the show, and um, we were talking about how trauma is is said to be passed down um, intergenerationally. So, for instance, um, say the mother experienced some, some sort of... Um, traumatic experience develops something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, and somehow, um, she has a child, um, and that child will also display symptoms of PTSD, even though they may not have, uh, experienced uh, anything that's overly traumatic. Um, you know, this is, this has been shown in many mammalian studies as well. So, you know, in mice, um, there've been a number of studies on mice where, they have subjected mice to uh, a traumatic event and the mice have gone on to produce certain proteins or they have um, developed a dysregulation in their um, stress stress response in their, their ability, 
ability to um, to regulate stress hormones. And so um, what they find is that the, the mice will go on to mate and they'll have an offspring and the offspring will have similar patterns in their um, in their stress response. You know, they will either lack certain proteins or they will um, produce n- more proteins than necessary. And so, um, yeah, to psychological issues as well. Um, you've got it's not necessarily just biological. It's not just um, to do with hormones and proteins and everything. And um, and I think that science uh, scientists they don't tend to stray into the idea that perhaps there is another component to DNA. Maybe a, another layer that we aren't necessarily um, aware of, or that science can't measure, and that um, perhaps DNA has some sort of information storage capacity, um, not so much in the physical sense. So not necessarily like uh, you know certain chemicals, and uh, they talk about genes and um, you know chromosomes and all of these things, but perhaps perhaps at some level. DNA is can act as a storage facility for um uh, uh you know a non tangible um DNA DNA mm-hmm. um no non tangible sort of um experience almost if that makes mm-hmm. any sense so DNA can somehow hold the previous experience or your own experience and then pass that on as information but not something that's measurable. If <laughs> sorry, you caught yeah. me a little bit off guard there. <laughs> so you're talking about like the, the information field or the quantum field that surrounds all of us and everything. Like uh, there was a story on Sod about this man who had some accident and they did a brain scan and they found out that he only had like a little piece of a brain, but yet he was still, you know, able to go about his life. He had, He'd been married, he had children, he had a job, and that your your brain is not your mind. So kind of like whatever it is that holds the collective thoughts of humanity also holds information that can be transmitted through our DNA or epigenetically. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, yeah, there's there's this word epigenetics, but this is still very sort of um, physical, you know. This is mm-hmm. this is working on a chemical basis that that we can measure to some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying that perhaps to some extent there are uh, qualities of DNA that are maybe not necessarily um, measurable in the sense of. Uh, we we don't have the technology or perhaps we will never have the technology to be able to measure um, these qualities of DNA. But perhaps somehow, you know, that there is this uh, higher level of information that that is transmitted, I guess, Mm -hmm. a a bit like this, this, this theorized information field, you know, Mm -hmm. Elliot, maybe. So maybe we can backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about basic genetics. There was this article that you were discussing previously to our show, Previously thought impossible, body cells transfer genetic information directly into sperm cells. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. That came up um, in 2014 on SOT, and it absolutely blew my mind when I read it, because um, I guess we have to backtrack and sort of go into what what is the, um, you know, the common belief about genetics. 
Um, you know, like modern genetics is based on the same genetic principles that have been um, that have been around for hundreds of years. You know, um, it, it's it, there's certain laws in genetics that are called Mendelian laws, and they basically mm-hmm. state that specific traits um, they're passed down from one generation to the next, and this can only occur via sexual reproduction. Okay, so when two people have sex, um, basically sperm is released. And a female egg is released, and in the sperm and the egg are housed something called chromosomes. Now, these chromosomes uh, contain DNA, and this is known as, you know, what uh, makes us us. It's our genetic information. And so this guy called Gregor Mendel, he came up with, the, um, with, with, with a, cer- a certain set of laws that basically state the only way that genetic information can be passed down is via sexual reproduction. Now, there's something called uh, the Wiseman barrier as well, and this fits in perfectly with Gregor Mendel's theory. Um, it basically, this is a law that states that hereditary information can only move from genes to the body and not the other way around. So when you have a child, the idea is, is that your genetics are passed down to that child and those genes are the same. They will stay the same for the rest of their life. And they're... Those genes that you pass down are what basically determines the health and the um, phenotype of your child. Okay, so these are this is basically the official narrative. This is the the official idea of genetics. Okay, but this there, there's a recent study that came out that basically um, completely disproves everything that we think that we know about how genetics actually work. Um, this particular study, um, what they did was they they grafted human melanoma tumor cells into mice, um, and these tumor cells were genetically manipulated to express certain genes. Um, and what they actually found was that the mice that were grafted with these tumor cells, um, they released something called exosomes. So an exosome is, um, they say it's a small nanoparticle which contains RNA and DNA, which is basically your genetic information. And, um, and what these exosomes did was they could actually deliver the RNA to sperm cells and, um, and affect the, sp- the sperm. They essentially alter the genetic code. Now, <laughs> this might not make sense at the minute, okay? But basically what the, um, you know, the set laws of genetics say is that your body cells cannot affect your sex cells. Okay, no information from your body can alter the genes that are in your sex cells, in your sperm and in your egg. And, um, and these mice, these exosomes, wh- whatever they are, they're actually shown to, to do that, you know, to, to basically <laughs> defy all laws of genetics. So what the, um, the, the research has actually concluded was that sperm acts as a vector, not only for their own genome, but also for foreign genetic information based on their ability to take up exogenous DNA and RNA that are then delivered to the sperm, to the, to the egg cells. So (laughs) in in simple terms, like what it means is that, um, the way that you live your life, the way that you behave, um, your moment to moment decisions, your toxic exposure, um, your nutritional exposure, all of these choices that you make in your life, can actually affect the DNA that you pass down onto your sperm. 
onto your offspring. You know, and this this is uh, a completely new concept that you know uh, almost all scientists in the field completely deny. You know, the idea is is that your genetics stay the same, but they actually don't. Um, and so, on our topic, uh, how trauma can be passed down um, via your genetics down to your offspring, it makes absolute perfect sense because if you are exposed to that traumatic experience, um, whether it be you know, it could be anything, um, then the way that your body reacts to that can theoretically, via these exosomes, or whether there are more processes, we don't know, but that trauma can theoretically alter the DNA, the, 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 the genes that are housed in your sperm, and, um, and then that, that gets passed on, you know, and then I guess that's coded for in your children. So <laughs> they... They're born with, with this, with this imprint of, of your trauma. And that, that is actually measurable, you know? That is fascinating. It's a really, really fascinating topic. That makes scary. me wonder about, it. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I've been learning lately about the history around, uh, especially World War One, but both of the World Wars. But World War One was especially horrific. Um, you know, so many, like ten, tens of millions of people died in that war and so many people were involved in it. Um, and so many people were heavily traumatized, you know, that those are our, uh, great grandparents and our grandparents were involved in world war two. And it, it mm -hmm. makes me wonder, you know, of course there are many other traumatic things that happen in the world, um, you know, in, in the home or in society and things like that. But those giant, um, societal, uh, occurrences like these wars, it makes me wonder how much of that trauma was, um, was passed down into the entire generation. And I almost wonder if that has something to do with, uh, with, you know, partly with the way our society is today. Like we, we have kind of a mass PTSD. Yeah. Well, according to research available, that may well be the case. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, Elliot, to your point about DNA, it, it reminded me of this article that I saw, <clears throat> um, and this is interesting to me because it doesn't, you know, it's, some people shy away from the whole information theory thing because it's, uh, it's kind of vague and it's, it's hard to explain, um, you know, information theory being that there is, excuse me, this sort of field of information, um, that we can pick up on or transmit somehow. And it's not very well understood. Um, and we're not entirely sure what it has to do with. However, um, Recently at the University of Washington, um, researchers have successfully uh, transferred digital images using DNA. Um, this is it here in one experiment outlined in the paper that was published from University of Washington. The team successfully encoded digital data from four image files into the nucleotide sequences of synthetic DNA snippets. More significantly, they were also able to reverse the process retrieving the correct sequences from a larger pool of DNA and then reconstructing the images without losing a single byte of information. Wow. Hmm. So, I mean, if that's, if that is, is, uh, basically understood and can actually be done, uh, today, uh, basically encoding information in DNA and then retrieving it later, uh, I have to assume, uh, that there is much, much more below the surface of this, uh, you know, to our, our topic, um, that information is being transferred 
uh, from generation to generation through the DNA that is passed on, um, that it's encoded. And then I think the, the problem being, uh, as with any kind of trauma that we don't really know how to process it. Um, you know, we may have this information, but we're not entirely sure in the first place what it even is. Uh, and, and in the second place, how to, how to accurate or how to correctly process it. So like if your grandmother experienced some really heavy trauma and that was passed down to your, uh, to your parents and then to you, uh, you may not even have know what happened. Yeah. Um, so we had talked in our previous show about how it's important to understand the history of your family um, and what they have gone through so that you know what you might need to or, or not need to process in your own life. Um, but unfortunately, I think a lot of people now don't have that knowledge. Um, I use the example of myself. I, I, you know, I never met my, my grandparents. I was born late in my parents' life, and so I never really had any understanding of them. So I know my parents very well, obviously, and what they've gone through, but beyond that, I don't really know. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, a day-to-day as new things are cropping up and I'm, you know, learning more about myself as I grow, but it's, uh, it always helps to have more information about what you might be, um, inheriting. Well, that yeah. makes me think of well, this article that was on SOT called Trauma Lost and Found, How Unherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are. And there was this young kid who uh, was a straight-A student. He was a star athlete. And all of a sudden, he just started coming down with this really awful insomnia. And, you know, he was having these uh, periods of depression and despair. He dropped out of college. He lost his uh, baseball scholarship. And he was going through all these doctors and psychologists and clinics to try and get help. And uh, he just could not get to sleep. Nobody knew why. And, you know, when he was 19, he woke up at like 3.30 in the morning. He was shaking, shivering, freezing. He couldn't get warm no matter what. Uh, He couldn't get to sleep. Um, And he had this fear that something awful would happen to him if he let himself fall back to sleep. He thought he would never wake up. So every time he would try and fall asleep or he would fall asleep, he'd just jump right back up. And this happened night after night. And it just, you know, just spiraled and it got worse and worse. And so he actually found out from his mother that his father's brother, his uncle, that he never knew about, was 19 years old, and he froze to death while working on power lines in Canada. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And Western so once, yeah, yeah, once he found that out, he was able to you know work with his therapist and kind of heal himself but it's so bizarre how he didn't even know his uncle he didn't know this story and just even on an energetic level how why did it affect him why not somebody else or why did it affect him at all why couldn't it well yeah that's a good question yeah like why that's not even his father yeah or his mother for that matter so it's how how is he getting that information how is his body um you know getting that information and dealing with it Mm-hmm. I puzzles over the same thing. It's, I have a similar story in my family. Well, not that nobody froze to death, but my mother, she had a younger brother. When they were they were living in Korea, very young. This was in the fifties in the Korean War, and uh, this uncle that I never met, um, he died. Uh, he drowned. They went to play, and he didn't know how to swim. 
and um, he didn't want to admit to admit that, and he got drowned. And when I heard this story from my mother, you know, it was like there was a big like sense of recognition, like literally, like my body was vibrating when I heard it. And then afterwards, it made me reflect on a little bit of my feelings of not admitting to certain things because, you know, it's not allowed. And uh, I think, you know, I, I was more self-aware after that. And I got very relieved, you know, about his story, you know. And theoretically, hmm. why, you know, it's, yeah, why such a big deal, so to speak. <laughs> it is mm-hmm. a big deal. <laughs> but if this was a kid who was 10 years old and my mother was, like, very young, a teenager, uh, and why would that affect the descendants, you know, why? Yeah, some kind of energetic tie that ties you to certain ancestors. And I was reading The Body Electric by Bob Becker, and he worked a lot with salamanders, and something very interesting in his book, he said that there's an energetic template out in the field, like, that contains everything that your body should be, like, he would snip off the tails of salamanders, as poor salamanders in his studies, <laughs> snip off their tails and the tails would grow back. But it's like the salamander's body on earth knew that there was this electronic template somewhere floating around and it could draw information from there. So do we draw information from like our ancestors' energetic templates? I don't know. It's hmm. strange. That's very yeah, interesting. It makes me think of the. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Elliot. Uh, no, I was. I was just going to say, uh, uh, Robert Becker. Some of his work is absolutely fascinating, yeah. and I think that he he posits that there, there's definitely something to do with electricity, mm-hmm. because with the um, with the salamanders, when he did his experiments, um, what he what he found was that the salamander's body created um, something called a. Um, a neuroepidemal junction. I think he coined the term. Now, what the neuroepidemal junction did was it actually um, generated something called. It, it was a very weak, but it was definitely there. Um, it generated a, a DC electric current, and I think that there are some people that have taken his work and theorized that perhaps there is some um, some electrical. Um, Maybe the body has a capacity to um, interact with this field via via um, via generating el- electricity, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes me think of the um, idea of protomorphogens, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head who coined that term, but it's uh, the theory is that um, it's like uh, the like treats like um, kind of homeopathic. Uh, theory, but that uh, cells from any organ actually contain a template for that entire organ, mm-hmm. uh, which is why if you're having liver problems, you can take raw liver and regenerate your liver. And is it has actually been shown people have been cured. I, I had seen one study a couple years ago of a guy who had stage four liver cancer and cured it by taking raw liver. Um, <clears throat> and this has also happened in the case of their pets. There was one a parrot who had eye cancer and the the uh, owner of the parrot uh, decided to give it raw eye uh, which you can get you know you can get these supplements some of them come from standard process i think um and uh, the eye regenerated and the cancer was gone um 
but the idea being that it, that cells from any organ actually contain that template. Um, so I wonder if it's, you know, maybe it's not as simple as it being contained in the cell itself, but it's this uh, field that we're talking about that it can kind of tap. I mean, obviously reality is much more complex than we understand. Um, it's fun to get glimpses into that complexity through things like this. Yeah, and I, th- I think a lot of um, a lot of this sort of background information um, really highlights the the I guess how much how little we actually know about DNA, and I think I think it indicates that you know that there is there is some some component of DNA that that um, that has some miraculous abilities, but we don't necessarily understand it and whether we will understand it in the future, who knows, you know, Um, maybe it's one of those things that science um, in its nature is never going to be able to fully understand as it is. If if that makes any sense, you know, Mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps it is this information, um, something to do with information, but it's something that can't be measured, you know? Well, I think it was, you know, the the problem with ever really finding out the truth on a massive scale about that is that science would have to kind of put its ego down for a minute and and have a meeting with the paranormal side of things, um, which is, you know, would be would be hard to uh, to facilitate that meeting. I don't know who would mediate that, but. Uh, you know, it's, it happens in certain areas of society. There are scientists and researchers who have an open mind and consider the implications of uh, energetic transfer uh, and how it dovetails with physicality. Um, but it's the the problem is actually getting, you know, full blown research in this area where we can come up with concrete theories about how this kind of thing happens. And I think uh, the, you know the, those two worlds are so dramatically separated. Um, that it's it's hard to bring them together. Well, in the article that Gabby mentioned about trauma lost and found, how inherited family trauma shapes who we are, it's actually based on a book called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Woylan. He talks about Sigmund Freud, and not that I'm a big fan, but he identified like this repeated traumatic pattern over a hundred years ago. They called it traumatic reenactment or repetition compulsion as Freud coined it. And basically it's an attempt to the unconscious to replay what's unsolved so we can get it right. Uh, They call it this unconscious drive to relive past events could be one of the mechanisms at work when families repeat unsolved, unresolved traumas in future generations. And then Carl Jung also believed that what remains unconscious does not dissolve, but rather resurfaces in our lives as fate or fortune. And there's a quote that says, whatever does not emerge as consciousness returns as destiny. In other words, we're likely to keep repeating our unconscious patterns until we bring them into the light of awareness. Both Jung and Freud noted that whatever is too difficult to process does not fade away on its own, but rather is stored in our unconscious. Well, that makes me think of the whole phenomenon of spirit attachment. Like, what if, you know, ancestors pass on and they kind of glom onto some of the younger members of their family and those family members have this unconscious desire to kind of resolve whatever this 
ancestral attachments mm-hmm. didn't resolve during his or her lifetime? Yeah. Well, <laughs> this reminds me the quotes I read um, on the previous show about this topic from Olga Karatidi, which is a psychiatrist. From, she comes from Siberia. Uh, and uh, she had an experience with <clears throat> with some kind of healers in Uzbekistan, in Samarkand. And she was listening to one of their talks, you know, to hear about their spiritual beliefs. And, yes, and they do provide like a hypothesis or a theory, if you want, uh, that goes very well in line about spirit release and therapy and trauma, as we're discussing it in this show, you know. And they were saying, yes, that we call the stories of unhappiness and disease trauma. And we believe that there are life representations of trauma in all of us. In our tradition, we call them spirits of trauma. And whenever whenever some, some, something hurts you, you don't accept it fully as a complete part of your history. You create a gap in your memory, a gap which, when the hurt is strong, repeated many times, becomes occupied by a spirit of trauma. And this process is often extended throughout generations by the inheritance of patterns of trauma formed, perhaps long, long ago, when one of your ancestors went through an unbearable hurt. I thought that was fascinating, you know, because it ties the frontiers of science and, and the spiritual side as well. Like it goes in hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and like I wonder the, if this the, be- the, the story that Tiffany shared, I mean, this poor young teenager had no idea what was going on, yet he was physically reliving these experiences on a cellular level in his body and was almost mm-hmm. driven insane by it. Mm-hmm. Erica, can you tell us about the other story told in that article? Oh, about, about um, Gretchen. Gretchen, let's see if we can find it here. I think because, oh, uh, um, yeah, yes. so another case was Gretchen after years of taking antidepressants, attending talk and group therapy lessons, trying various cognitive approaches for mitigating the effects of stress. Her symptoms of depression and anxiety remained unchanged. Gretchen told me she no longer wanted to live. For as long as she could remember, she'd struggle with emotions so intense she could barely contain the surges in her body. She had been admitted admitted several times to a psychiatric hospital where she was diagnosed with bipolar and severe anxiety disorder. Medication brought her slight relief but never touched the powerful suicidal urges that lived inside her. As a teenager, she would self-injure by burning herself with the lit end of a cigarette. Now at 39, she had had enough. Her depression and anxiety had prevented her from marrying or having children. And in a surprisingly matter-of-fact tone, she told me that she was planning to commit suicide before her next birthday. So listening to this story, the doctor had a strong sense that there must be significant trauma in her family history. And he explains how he finds it essential to pay close attention to the words being spoken for clues to the traumatic event underlying a client's symptoms. When I asked her how she planned to kill herself, she said she was going to vaporize herself. As incomprehensible as it might sound to most of us, her body, her, her plan was to literally leap into a vat of molten steel at the mill where her brother worked. My body would incinerate in seconds, she said, staring directly into my eyes, even before it reaches the bottom. 
So the doctor was struck by her lack of emotion as she spoke. Whatever feeling lay beneath appeared to have been vaulted deep inside her. At the same time, the words vaporize and incinerate rattled inside me. Having worked with many children and grandchildren whose families were affected by the Holocaust, I learned to let her words lead me. And so I asked if anyone in her family was Jewish or had been involved in the Holocaust. She said no, but then stopped herself and recalled a story about her grandmother. Um, I won't go into the whole story. I posted the link on the forums or on the chat so people could read the article. But basically, her grandmother's entire family had perished in the ovens of Auschwitz. They had literally been gassed, engulfed in poisonous vapors, and incinerated. No one in Gretchen's fam- immediate family ever spoke to her grandmother about the war or about the fate of her siblings and her parents. Instead, as is often the case with such extreme trauma, they avoided the subject entirely. <laughs> and so basically through this, what did he call it, Gabby? This cognitive, he, this doctor has an approach with uh, listening to the words that people use. Exactly. To kind of... I think that... Oh, go on. I think that is why I would even recommend the book. Yeah, I, I haven't read it. To be honest, I haven't read it, but I would recommend it because um, he listens to the keywords people say, and he will connect the dots, you know, and try to explore that. I think that it's um, that, that it's very important. That is basically even what I have done reviewing my my family history. But this was only after, you know, it took me the longest time, you know. I couldn't even say that I spent most of my life living in PTSD. And I knew that objectively, there was no reason for me to feel like that in my childhood. Yes, you know, standard, pretty narcissistic family like everybody else. But it didn't justify how I was feeling, you know. And it was just basically when I had the chance to meet a very rare therapeutic modality where I where I made a past life recollection that, yes, uh, it was like a dam was opened and everything started flowing again. I even, you know, had memories, flashes of memories. But after that, you know, I had like the courage, you know, to look at my family history. Started, started, um, I started asking questions and to that part of my family, which is from Korea, no records were available. I just reviewed history documentaries and I started to connect the dots and I realized that in the family history were all the clues you know to the past recollection that I had of my past life so maybe the whole thing was symbolic it was not literal or maybe it was literal as well we will never I will I will never know but I think that yes like um reviewing family history can be very therapeutic you know and when you approach it like that you know from that questioning and uh, I haven't met a therapist who who will be so like you know so clear about his approach as these couple of stories were, you know, and how he approached it. Yeah, he it's actually called a core language approach, and so he listens to the stories beneath the story and uh, targets emotionally charged words people use to describe their fears and symptoms. He says it's like a breadcrumb trail that can lead us back to traumatic events in our family history. So it's like you said, Gabby, you watch a documentary, and we all watch lots of documentaries, and (laughs) some of them are more moving than others, and it it seems almost familiar. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's why I think it's kind of sad that a lot of us can only go back a generation or two and know the stories of our family um, due to like our fractured society or genocides and slavery and just families being broken up. You kind of don't have that, you know, long generation after generation after generation history anymore. And, you know, storytelling that kind of is a lost art nowadays. Um, so, there are a lot of people that probably could use this kind of therapy, but they actually just don't have access to all the information that they need. And in that case, I guess you could kind of substitute by looking at the history of the particular culture that you come from or just studying world history or studying the history of the country that maybe your ancestors may have come from. Maybe you might, you know, get some flashes of inspiration while you're studying. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the fact that the, you know, the Western medicine approach is to just put these people on drugs, you know, especially with all these quote unquote mental illnesses and not, you know, because talk therapy or those kind of approaches aren't really practiced in Western medicine, you know, they just mask the symptoms and then it keeps on being passed down. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wonder if this would be a good time to go to that Gabor Mate clip uh, that we have. Um, we had played this on our last show on this topic, but uh, it did not come through in the recording because of the technical issues we had. So let's uh, let's check that out, and then we'll discuss when we come back. Uh, autism is a disease. And then, being a disease, it's got a biological basis. And having a biological basis, all we can do is to work with the biology. That's what it leads us to. And by the way, I'm not against medications. And I'll tell you right now, I've been diagnosed with ADHD myself. I've had have, have a couple of my kids. And I don't think it's a disease and I don't think it's genetic. And I'll be talking a little bit about this morning, not because I want to give you a seminar on ADHD, because it's a perfect example for me to convey to you the current information on child brain development. So we have a behavior problem or we have a disease problem. But there's a third way to understand human beings and I think the only way to understand human beings. And that may be called a biopsychosocial perspective. One fancy word, biopsychosocial. What does that mean? It means that the biology of human beings is, for a lifetime, shaped by and affected by people's psychological and social relationships. Now, I'll begin by giving you three examples of that. So, a whole number of studies have shown now that children whose parents are stressed are more likely to have asthma. So the more stressed the parents are, the more likely the kids to have asthma. And in polluted areas where asthma is obviously more common because uh, the contaminated air uh, aggravates the airways, you know, aggravates the child's breathing apparatus, it's still the parents who are stressed whose kids are most likely to have the asthma. Now, if you ask the average medical doctor 
explain that study. What's that all about? They really have a hard time with it because medicine separates the mind from the body. Western medicine separates the mind from the body. So we don't consider emotional factors in the onset of illness. And yet I'll be telling you that all, all chronic health conditions are actually related to emotional states and particularly to what happens to people in childhood. So who gets cancer, who gets asthma, who gets multiple sclerosis, these are not accidental events. They have to do with childhood experiences. Because the biopsychosocial perspective says that the biology of human beings is shaped for a lifetime by the psychological and social environment. So a Canadian study here in Toronto, actually, uh, less than two years ago showed that if you abuse as a child, your risk of cancer as an adult goes up almost 50%. Now, and this is after you've controlled for such factors as smoking or inactivity or other lifestyle issues. Biopsychosocial. Now, if you look back to the case of the child who's asthmatic, if, any of you, if anybody here has been treated for asthma, you know that how we treat asthma is with inhalers. So what happens in asthma is you get narrowing of the airways, so the bronchi, which are the airways, are surrounded by smooth muscle, and the smooth muscle goes into spasm, so the airways narrow, and now you have air flowing through a narrowed tube, so you have the labored wheezing of the asthmatic. Making things worse is inflammation. So the airways get inflamed, they swell up internally, there's debris which further obstructs the flow of air. How we treat asthma is by means of inhalers that, number one, open up the airway, they relax those muscles, bronchodilators they're called, and furthermore we treat them with inhalers that suppress the inflammation so the airways can again be more um, open and conduct the flow of air. What you may not know is that the bronchodilator, the inhaler that opens up the airways, is actually a copy of adrenaline. And the anti-inflammatory is a corticosteroid, it's a copy of cortisol. Now, what are adrenaline and cortisol? Anybody here know? They're stress hormones. Adrenaline and cortisol are the stress hormones manufactured by the adrenal gland. Renal means kidney, adrenal means on top of the kidney. So the adrenal gland sits on top of the kidney here on both sides. It sets off or it releases a number of hormones, primarily the hormone named after it, adrenaline. And just like the brain, the adrenal gland has a cortex. Cortex means bark, like the bark of a tree. And so the adrenal gland also secretes a hormone named after the cortex called cortisol. And cortisol and adrenaline are the hormones that our body, through the adrenal glands, secrete when you're stressed. So if I were to stress you right now, threaten you, or just uh, emotionally um, upset you, your adrenal gland would be secreting uh, adrenaline and cortisol, which would help you uh, increase your heart rate, more energy, uh, more oxygen to the muscles and to the brain. It would uh, increase your blood pressure so that uh, you're stronger. It would uh, elevate your sugar levels so that you have more energy to fight or to escape. 
And those are the hormones that we treat asthma with. Now, what's actually happened here is that the stress, resp- the normal stress response mechanism of the child whose parents are stressed has become exhausted. And now we have to give them extra stress hormones to keep their airways open. So that when children are overstressed, their, their natural stress response mechanism gets exhausted. Now keep that in mind. Because if you look at which is the medication that's used most commonly in all of medical practice for eczema, for psoriasis, for asthma, for multiple sclerosis, for colitis, for Crohn's disease, for rheumatoid arthritis, for certain kind of cancers, what is it? It's cortisol, the stress hormone. But my profession never asks itself, if we're using stress hormones to treat everything, maybe stress has something to do with it? Well, it's pretty fascinating, and I like how he ends that, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a really common sense approach. I think it's something that, you know, we uh, don't really think about by and large, um, as we talked previously about modern medicine and their kind of hack and slash pharmaceutical approach uh, to disease. Um, we could really benefit from a more, a more holistic common sense approach to these things and looking at, you know, like Mate said, if we treat the majority of uh, illnesses, and a lot of those are, you know, itises and uh, osises, which are infl- inflammatory, mm-hmm. if we treat them with stress hormones, then we can deduce that they are caused by a depletion of stress hormones, which comes from being stressed. Uh, and I don't think anybody would disagree that society now uh, is much, much more stressed uh, than we were in the past. You know, the average Jane and Joe are, are dealing with stress on a daily level that uh, that their ancestors didn't have to deal with. You know, not necessarily just like <clears throat> running from predators and that kind of thing, but just the, the media, the pressure, the schedules. Uh, you know, even if you don't work like a quote unquote like high power job or anything like that you're still stressed on a daily basis and there's you know not just that but just world events and just knowing about what's going on and hearing negative things uh, in the news and you know I think um, it's it's rare for people to actually find a, a moment of peace um, and so we can like I said we can deduce that when we're more stressed we're going to be more sick yeah, and also on top of that, it's like it's that we are actually less able to deal with stress. Um, yeah. be, you know, as because we're inheriting all this trauma from past generations, we just went, like you were mentioning before, Jonathan, like two major world wars and all these different, uh, traumatic events that seem to be ramping up. So being put into, you know, if we were, um, completely functional, kind of at like a blank slate coming into this world, we might be much better at dealing with this stressful world that we're in. But the fact of the matter is we're starting off like, you know, a couple of pegs back. Because we've been, you know, we've inherited all this, uh, this trauma, um, from previous generations. Not to mention all the, uh, past life stuff that might be going on. So it, it just, it, it's, it's a soup of terribleness mm-hmm. that, uh, that we live in and our ability to deal with it is much less than it might have been. And conversely, like we were talking about on the last trauma from your mama show, um, you probably need a certain amount of, uh, preparation 
in order to be born into a certain environment. Like maybe if we were born as blank slates and we came into this, we would just explode from the stress. But if we were prepped yeah. with whatever it was that we inherited, maybe we'd come in and be able to deal with it in a way that fits into the way that everyone else is dealing with it so you don't stick yeah. out and, you know, completely uh, suffer. Yeah, there's an interesting statement from the same article, Trauma Lost and Found, about a guy, Rachel Jehuda. He says that the purpose of these epigenetic changes is to expand the range of ways we respond in stressful situations, which she says is a positive thing. Who would you rather be in a war zone with, she asks. Somebody that's had previously um, adverse Somebody that's had previous adversity and knows how to defend themselves or somebody that has never had to fight for anything. Mm -hmm. Once we understand what biological changes from stress and trauma are meant to do, she says, we can develop a better way of explaining to ourselves what our true capabilities and potentials are. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um, I mean, I think that's probably why the system kind of works in the way that it does, uh, like within the body that, you know, it's it's kind of like preparing your offspring for the same kind of adversity that you had faced in your life. So it makes sense from that perspective. But I think when you get into overwhelming um, PTSD causing events, then it actually becomes detrimental. Um, like I do, I, I don't discount that point. I think that's a good, a, a good point, but I think that when you're dealing with like massively overwhelming trauma, then you, 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 what, what's being passed down is actually a disadvantage to the offspring. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's the way I read it anyway. Especially if the environment has changed by the time the child is born, like everything's okay yeah. now. You don't have to be that way, but yet you're yeah. born yeah. with all of yeah. this trauma that you don't really need and that it doesn't serve you like you're going crazy yeah but i think there 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 lies the potential you know when the person as the person grows and tries to rewrite his his or her own narrative there is potential for healing Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. yeah it's tricky well there was a uh an interesting article on um thought that we looked in for two for the show it was uh not only trump Trauma, but also the reversal of trauma is inherited. And it basically went into the details of how if somebody does kind of overcome um, a traumatic event in some way, then that information is then passed down to their children as well. So it's almost like, um, you know, if you, if you uh, learn um, how to deal with some sort of traumatic situation or how to get over trauma from a situation, you're passing down that information to your children as well. So it's, it's, it's actually quite hopeful in that way. It's like, you know, there's, there's multiple generations involved in kind of figuring out how to deal with this, how to deal with whatever traumatic situation kind of came. You know, if your parents couldn't do it, maybe you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Gab, Gabby, to what you said about, you know, being in a, in kind of a quote unquote war zone situation with somebody, I, I, I agree that I would rather be in that situation with somebody who had that similar kind of experience and had dealt with it before. And to add to that, that that person had also learned how to deal with it. Yeah, you know, exactly. Kind of yeah. like then to Doug, what you said, uh, you know, that uh, having having the stress, having the trauma, and then also the capability of processing it. So exactly. I wonder what, um, you know, what can we recommend? Obviously, as we've said, this area is not very well understood, um, but uh, 
I was curious what we can recommend to like the average Jane or Joe, like, you know, how to deal with this information and, and make a kind of a practical application out of it. One thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, if you've, <clears throat> if you've had kids already, then to work with them, like understand your own trauma, understand what you might have been inherited, uh, what you might have inherited, look, look into your family history, um, and do your best to process that and then do your best to help your children process that. But, uh, if you have not had children and if you either plan to or think that you might, um, go ahead and, and do that work now, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you can actually benefit your unborn children by processing your own trauma first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can that, benefit it, yourself too. In that video yeah. of Gaber Mate, it was actually taken from a conference for parents and caregivers and social workers of children. And at the end of the conference, he says, so you're all probably wondering, have you screwed up your kids? <laughs> and he says, yes, you have. <laughs> but the reality is now you know these basic things like, you know, when you're stressed, your children are stressed and you can do something about it. Like we can't change the past. We can't change what happened to generations in the past. But just the awareness about it and the actual physical sensations that happen in your body, the release of cortisol, the stress hormones and all that, how you can, you know, practice deep breathing like Mm. EE or do some bioenergetic breathing or you know, just small things that you can do when you start to feel that stress response and, and kids do cause stress, you know, and so uh, not being that parent that loses it in the grocery store on your kids in the, in the aisle, but yeah. to take five and breathe and pull yourself back together so you're not passing on those traits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think just- that's important. Because um, it's it's it, it's really difficult because like like you were saying before, Tiff, um, that the you know we don't always have access to the information from previous generations. You know, I didn't know my grandparents that well. I never heard any stories about major traumas that they might have been through, even though I knew that they were involved in in World War II in various ways. Um, but I don't know that it's a, like an absolutely necessary that you know exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's ways, I mean, if you know you've been affected and you know that you have some kind of, uh, trauma or it, it seems as if you react to things in a, in an exaggerated way, then I think that there's ways to deal with that without knowing the details. So you kind of just take where you are and try and work from there. Mm-hmm. That's a great point that it may take just looking at what your, like you said, your dramatic reactions are. Mm. Like Gabby, Gabby, your story about the drowning, that made me think of, I, I have an irrational fear of deep water and I, I've <laughs> never been able to, um, to, to overcome it. And I mean, I guess it's kind of embarrassing, but I'm not embarrassed to admit it. Um, you know, if I, like the last time it happened, we were out in a boat, um, in uh, Lake Superior in, you know, about a hundred feet of water and everybody jumped in and I was just frozen, just couldn't, mm. could not do it. Like white knuckle grabbing the railing on the boat. And there's no, there's no real like reason for that. I guess I had always kind of thought in the back of my mind that maybe I drowned in a past life or something like that. But on, on, mm. on the opposite side, um, maybe one of my ancestors drowned and then that was passed down. You know, it gives a whole new, whole new perspective on, on uh, where you're, uh, really hardcore phobias from, 
uh, come from. And I think everybody's got some kind of phobia, even if it's not crippling. You know, we've all got some kind of dramatic reaction to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, Jonathan, the next time you're out in the deep water and everybody's jumping in, jump in with them. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> Re traumatize yourself. Address your fear. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, what is it? Co- cognitive therapy, where you revisit the the cause of the trauma. Yeah, hmm. that yeah. that will be that immersion be? therapy, literally. Immersion <laughs> 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 therapy. Yeah, and there's a I think there's a difference because throughout my life I have said, oh yeah, maybe I was this or that in a past life and whatever. Who who hasn't gone through that? You know, it's a in a sense. You know, it's from more from an intellectual side. There's a whole different story when you like okay, you sit down, you know, and um, start connecting, connecting the dots, asking some real basic questions, and with an open mind, explore. You know, what can you find about it, and um, something that you know reaches within you at the very deep level that can be a very healing experience. You know. Totally. So I, I think uh, we've got some, some good ideas around this. Um, you know, obviously there's not uh, a one-off solution to the entire issue. Um, but as we've discussed, you know, looking into your family history, um, and if you can't uh, for whatever reason or you just can't find uh, the specific information about what trauma your ancestors might have had, um, I guess I would say, like, first off, probably look at your own issues like what do you know uh that you have as far as uh phobias or traumatic reactions to certain things and then maybe talk to your parents and like you know if you get the chance around a dinner or whatever uh holiday that kind of thing you're having a conversation just bring it up and be like hey i heard this interesting thing you know about trauma being passed down is there anything that you like went through that we've never talked about you know Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that can go side. I'm sure it can go <laughs> sideways sometimes. But. Yeah, or or even more basic. Just if you have the resources, resources and the tools, you start with a basic genealogy and see where it goes, if it's yeah. possible. Yeah. Yep. Mm. And then uh, processing, um, like we talked about, you know, areolus, uh, the breathing program is really great for that. Um, stimulating the vagus nerve to uh, reduce your stress reactions. Um, getting proper sleep, um, regulating your schedule in such a way that you're not stressing yourself out. Now, it's not possible all the time, uh, but, you know, when it is possible um, to just work on how you process uh, stress. I mean, it's it's kind of a no-brainer that you'll feel better, but the benefits kind of um, cascade uh, beyond just feeling better. You know, you actually correct systems in your body. And as we've seen, uh, there are these not very well understood uh, genetic codes, um, information held deep within the, the DNA that you may be able to affect by doing that. Um, and it, it, the, I think the hard part is we're such a result-driven society, like I need to see results right now. Um, you need to kind of be comfortable with the idea that you may not see results like this very second, like understanding the concept uh, and then working uh, towards a desired result. Uh, sometimes it just takes patience to get to that. It takes some time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we are coming up on our time here, so how do you guys feel about going to the pet health segment? Yeah. That sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah. Cool. And then we've got a recipe when we come back for meringue cookies. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week I decided to talk a bit about symbology of animals, like animal archetypes or totems. It is a huge and fascinating topic, and there is a lot to say about it. So this will be only an introduction. Those who research this topic believe that animal totems play a huge role in our lives. They aid in self-discovery and capture our imagination, giving us incredible avenues of self-expression and awareness. Additionally, they assist in understanding our past, and if we are attentive, our animal totems can reveal glimpses of our future. Since time immemorial, animals have served as harbingers of personality traits we as humans all aspire to achieve. This makes animals uh, some of the most powerful symbols in our spiritual toolbox. As it happens, animal symbols can be found in the earliest of cave drawings. Not only were they hunted, they were revered, if not worshipped. Each animal symbolizes something in terms of its strength and weakness. The weakness is its shadow. Nowadays, animal symbols uh, characterize our nations, our sports team, our schools and colleges, and many other things in today's world. For example, both Rome and now US took the eagle as their symbol. It is particularly interesting when we remember Rome's fate. What about other animals like bears symbolizing Russia? What's more, the profusion of animal symbols in the arts points to the importance of integrating our instinctual parts of ourselves with a conscious part of ourselves. This process Jung referred to as individuation. Individuation is the process of becoming whole. It is about integrating our instinctual and shadow parts of our individual unconscious with our conscious. It is psychic growth to wholeness. In itself, a particular animal is neither good or bad. It is part of nature, just as our instincts are part of our nature. As such, they often symbolize our shadow sides. Barbara Hena said during a lecture given at the Carl Jung Institute in Zurich that from a viewpoint of the psychology of Carl Jung, we can say that animals generally represent instincts when we meet them in dreams and active imagination. Each animal represents a different instinct, or, if you prefer, another aspect of instinct. There are multifacets, and their symbolic meaning necessarily depends on the context in the dream and the conscious situation of the dreamer. Speaking in general about animal symbolism, Jung says, Theriomorphic symbols are very common in dreams and other manifestations of the unconscious. They express the psychic level of the content in question. That is to say, such contents are at a stage of unconsciousness that is as far from human consciousness as the psyche of an animal. Warm-blooded or cold-blooded vertebrates of all kinds, or even invertebrates, uh, thus indicate the degree of unconsciousness. 
It is important for psychotherapists to know this because these contents can produce at all levels symptoms that are localized to, to the corresponding organic or physiological functions. For instance, the symptoms may be distinctly correlated with the cerebrospinal or the sympathetic nervous system. This gives us a very good idea of why it is so vitally important for anyone who is dealing with the products of the unconscious to study the symbolism of animals. It is too cheap to hang a label around the neck of an animal and always take the cat, for, for instance, as a woman's catty feminine nature or as the anima cat, or, or to mention witchcraft vaguely, as the cat is undoubtedly a witch animal. A stigma it shares, however, with a great many other small animals such as hares, uh, mice, rats, snakes, toads, spiders, ravens, crows, and so on. The cat does have a great deal to do with feminine nature, and the anima is very often a cat. But it has many other shades of meaning that appear in its actual characteristics and still more in its mythology. One needs to know something, at least about these nuances of meaning, before one can be at all sure what a cat is usually to represent in individual dreams and fantasies. But it's also important to remember that each animal archetype has both positive and negative sides, and that we have a choice of experiencing either side of the archetype. Regarding the importance of being on good terms with the animal in us, Heine once said that we can make a great effort and become conscious of an animal, say the lion, in ourselves. And then there is every hope of this image uh, developing positively, or we can remain unconscious of it. But it will still function within us and will possess us inevitably without our knowledge. In the light of consciousness, archetypal images of animals are positive and helpful, and our animal nature can become the psychic source of renewal and natural wholeness. However, it, if allowed to go off on their own in, into the unconscious, then the archetypal images and forces of animals become negative and destructive, bringing chaos and war. In presenting her material on animal symbolism, Heine was fond of quoting the incident in which Jung was asked in discussion at the psychological club in Zurich whether he thought that there would be an atomic war. Jung replied that it depended on how many people could stand the tension of the opposites in themselves. But if not, then he feared the opposites would sooner or later clash an atomic war and this would mean the end of our whole civilization. Sounds like nothing changed since the time Jung said these words, eh? All we can do from the standpoint of the archetypal images of animals is to do our best to become even more conscious of the extreme opposites that they contain within us and thus perhaps also lay an infinitesimal grain on the scales of humanity's soul. Well, this is it for today. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. That was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, thank you, Zoya. Um, let's see, I guess to wrap up uh, today's show, we've got a really simple recipe, and uh, this is something that might come in handy for 
uh, people who make a lot of uh, aioli or fat bomb using egg yolks and you have those leftover egg whites. Um, <clears throat> so you can, uh, you can actually make cookies out of those. And uh, it's kind of interesting. It's pretty simple. Um, basically, uh, the recipe is three egg whites. Of course, you can scale this to however many egg whites you have. Um, and then uh, the original recipe calls for three quarters cup sugar. So I would substitute whatever your sweetener is for that amount. Um, use your conversion. Um, for me, uh, for that amount, I would probably use about a tablespoon of uh, stevia. And you know whether you use like xylitol or erythritol, if you work with it a lot, then you know you understand kind of what your own tastes are and what your conversion ratio is. But it, I think it varies with a lot of people. Um, I think the standard conversion for stevia is a teaspoon to a cup of sugar, but I usually like to use a little bit more. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> if you have a uh, a beater, a uh, you know like a, a power mixer. Um, put the egg whites in a bowl and beat them until they become stiff. Uh, and they will, you know, turn white and kind of foam up and become stiff. And then gradually add in the sweetener and keep beating until the mixture begins to form peaks. Uh, and you can tell when the stiff peaks begin to form at the top of the bowl. Um, then take a, uh, a baking pan, uh, with, uh, parchment paper. Um, lay the paper out on the pan. And if you have some kind of a, uh, a dispenser like for frosting or something else like a squeeze bottle kind of thing you can use that or you can just put the egg whites into a, a plastic bag and cut the tip off of you know you make kind of a cone out of the bag and then cut the tip off so that you can squeeze them out of the end um, and you squeeze out about one inch uh, you know portions little kind of balls of the egg whites onto the pan and make your cookies uh, and then bake at 200 degrees for 45 minutes. Um, and then check them when they're done. Um, you don't want to brown them. Uh, you don't want to cook them too quickly at too high of a heat because then they'll actually get kind of mushy. But if you go at a longer time at a lower temperature, um, they'll be nice and uh, crisp. Um, so you can also modify this recipe in a bunch of ways. Um, I find it helpful with the egg whites uh, on the parchment paper to actually rub the paper with a little bit of uh, olive oil or coconut oil. They come off more easily when they're done. Um, and then you can add, you know, experiment with adding stuff to the uh, the egg whites. You can add like a lemon extract uh, or you could, um, you know, sprinkle like some cinnamon or cocoa onto them before you put them in the oven. Um, so kind of play around with the flavorings that you like. Um, but they're a pretty tasty treat. They're not... Uh, a lot of calories, of course, um, but they're a nice little, like, crunchy treat for the summer. So that's meringue cookies. Sounds good. Sounds mm. very good. Unfortunately, yeah. mm -hmm. I cannot have them. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you don't tolerate eggs, it's kind of out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, well, that is our show for today. So we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. And thanks to our chat participants uh, for taking part in the chats. Uh, we had a pretty busy chat room today, so that was nice. Um, and be sure to tune in, tune in to the other uh, SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. And if you visit radio.sot.net, if you're not in the Eastern time zone, you can see the accurate time 
on the site. Uh, if you just go to radio.sat.net on Sunday, uh, and it will show you the correct time that the show airs. Um, and yeah, we will be back, uh, next week with a new topic. So hope everybody has a great weekend and, uh, thanks again. We'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye.